Welcome to Between the Worlds, a podcast about tarot, magic, witchcraft, and all things enchanted. I'm your host, Amanda Yates Garcia, bringing you tarot tips, magical trips, and intimate conversation with witches and visionaries galore. Subscribers to our Weird Circle receive workshops, community bonus content, and magical support throughout the year. Visit BetweenTheWorldsPodcast.com for details. Thanks for traveling with us. We're glad you're here. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Sarah Shulman, who's written over 18 books, plays, and screenplays. She is an LGBTQIA activist and an AIDS historian. She's been awarded a Guggenheim, among many other awards, and is the co-founder of Mix NY LGBT Experimental Film and Video Festival, co-director of ACT UP Oral History Project, and the U.S. coordinator of the first LGBT delegation to Palestine. She's also on the advisory board of Jewish Voice for Peace, and is a fellow at the NY Institute for the Humanities at NYU. In short, she is an impressive person. I first came to know Sarah Shulman's work through her book, Conflict is Not Abuse, Overstating Harm, Community Responsibility, and the Duty of Repair, which I read when it first came out in 2016. Seriously, it was a book that made me look at conflict in a whole new way. It was one of those books that you just underline and dog ear. And it really encouraged me to approach disagreement from a place of much more patience and nuance. And it's really a book that encourages us to build strength in community by being willing to stay in our feelings of discomfort listen and be honest with each other and crucially to be honest with ourselves. So since to me the suit of swords is about conflict, a sword is a weapon after all, and about truth, I really wanted to get Sarah on the show to see what she'd have to say about this topic. As it turned out, Sarah has been practicing tarot for decades And while she doesn't really agree with me about the meaning of the suit of swords, we had conflicting opinions about that, you might say, we did have a fascinating combo, which I can't wait to share with you. So the first half of the show is us hashing it out about what the suit of swords means, which I think you'll really enjoy and get a kick out of. And then the second half, we get to take a deep dive into the content of her fascinating book, Conflict is Not Abuse. So stay with us. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited too. Um, So I understand that you have a relationship with the tarot. Can you tell us about how you got your start with the cards and what drew you to them? Well, when I was about 19, my friend Beryl Satter turned me on to tarot cards. She's now a famous historian, but at the time she was into a lot of esoterica and then I started going to the Women's Michigan Michigan Women's Music Festival at that time, and I was exposed to a lot of tarot. So I started reading uh, the Pamela Coleman Smith deck, 
And I've been reading it ever since. The only other deck I've ever really worked with is Rachel Pollock's um, Shining Women Tarot. But mostly it's just been the, the Rider deck. Awesome. So how do you use them now? I do readings for other people, sometimes like for fundraisers, for organizations, I'll donate a reading for free. Wow. And people will bid on it. Yeah. So I've been, so now I'm 62, right? So I've been doing it for 43 years. Wow. You can go in deep then with the tarot. That's awesome. Um, I don't know how much I actually know, but I have a relationship with that one deck. Yeah. Well, so, you know, like you, I have a background in, in the arts and the literary world. And as we know, folks in that world can sometimes treat the occult and things like tarot kind of dismissively, I found. Um, what do you think those folks aren't understanding? Well, it's not magic. It's just that it's existed since ancient Egypt. And so there's been thousands of years of human attention have gone into the cards and made them very complex. And I don't think that they, they don't predict the future, but they do give you another way of thinking about it that can be very helpful. Yeah, I feel like it opens it opens up our way of interacting with the reality that's around us right now and gives us different perspectives, different points of view. I mean, it's a wisdom tradition, so it's leading us there. We're focusing on the suit of swords today. So how do you understand the suit of swords when they appear in a reading? Well, I was interested that when you first invited me to your program that you said that the swords have a relationship with conflict because I've never thought of it that way. Mm. To me, the swords are about intelligence mm. and what happens when you separate intelligence from the rest of the human. You know, interestingly, although there, at least in, my, in the deck that I use, there are a lot of images of people having been hurt by swords or you know, people fighting with swords. There's no images of one person killing somebody else with a sword. So it's either um, the competitive nature of equal minds in a state of competition, which is something that can never be resolved, or it's the aftermath of a kind of betrayal, or it's a self-imposition of some kind of trap that, as Doris Lessing said, prisons we choose to live in, you know, some kind of self-created trap. And that's how I've understood it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the swords in relation to the Arthurian legends. I'm just really inspired of connecting the two and thinking about the sword, obviously, as a as a weapon. And then also something that confers power and authority. And then in the suit of tarot, I obviously see it as associated with... Uh, conception or, or language because swords kind of separate, right? They, they, they cleave apart in the same way that language like works to make distinctions within reality and um, to, to clarify our point of view. So, well, also they are a threat, right? You know, there's the threat of potential damage is really what the power of the sword is. Right. In the suit of swords, it's either in the future or the past, as you were saying, mm. that we're we're not really seeing the actual conflict taking place. But there's like conflict that's kind of ambient with throughout the suit of swords. And the suit of swords is known as the suit of problems. Most people don't enjoy it when the swords come up in their reading because we're conflict averse, I guess, and problem averse. But can there be benefits to conflict? Well, it's funny because I don't see swords as conflict. But yes, there are obviously 
can be benefits to conflict, obviously, because you can't live without conflict. It's a it's a normal part of healthy life. You know, Sarah Ahmed, I don't know if you follow her work, but she's I'm a great fan of hers. And she says that, you know, the idea that you can live in a life without any conflict means that only that other people would be repressed. Right in order for, for your life to be conflict-free. So a healthy society is one of great difference and based in difference produces conflict. Swords, I don't see so much as conflict. It, it's, the, it's the threat of domination. But so you make a distinction between conflict and the threat of domination. Could you let, tell us more about that? Well, because to me, conflict is, is a natural part of life and it, it's a place where growth can occur. Uh, domination or power over is what we call abuse. It's where no matter what you do, you can't stop this control from occurring. So it's power over. But conflict is power struggle. And that's where two parties are both participating in creating the conflict. They are both participating on some level of escalating, and they both have the power to change the direction. Abuse is power over. It's where the the party being acted upon has no power to change it. So for example, um, you know, in white supremacy, for example, nothing that a person of color does creates racism or justifies racism. It exists, and it's something then they're forced to contend with. It's not a system that they are producing. But in a conflict between two people, let's say, often there is some kind of participation. Like if you go back and look at the sequence of events that have led to producing a conflict, you can see places where both parties participate in some kind of escalation. If you don't, then you're in an, that's an abuse situation where it's completely the imposition of control that the other person cannot impact on. But you don't see the swords as relating to conflict because when you say all of those things, I'm like thinking so much about the suit of swords and the ways in which people are in relation to one another in that suit. Well, do you want to show a card and have us talk about it? Sure, that's a great idea. Okay, well, what about this one? This is a good one, I think, for conflict, the five of swords. Right. So that's when you've been in competition with others who are actually your equals. And so for and for some reason, having to do with chance, you've now won. And now you're separated from your community. So you've won. What have you won? Nothing. You're you're alone. Yeah. I mean, when I look at this card, um, for the for the listeners out there who aren't looking at it right now, this is a card where there's a guy standing with three swords kind of at the downstage area of the card. And then behind him in the middle distance, there's kind of a, another man looking bewildered. And then in the background, there's somebody else who seems to be grieving, who's got their head in their hands. And I've just been thinking about how this card is like the victor and then the victim and the community as well. So the the victor is like the sort of bully or the aggressor, and he's kind of got his smirk on that he's uh, managed to defeat his foe. And then the person here in the background is the one who's been vanquished. And then I see this person as this sort of bystander who's deciding how they're going to react to the situation. 
see, I don't see the, I don't pathologize the victor in this card because no one's really hurt. Ah. But it's just like, it's like in a petty competition where somebody has to win and this guy won. And now he won, but like, so what? Because he's alone. Let's look at another, another sword card. Okay, so we have, okay, the first one that comes up is the nine of swords. Okay, so how do you read that card? I read this card as about anxiety and regret. So I see that this person is considering something that is not happening to them right now at the moment. They're sitting up in bed. They've got nine swords on the wall behind them. They seem to be in a state of great turmoil, right? They've got their face in their hands. The The wall behind them is deep black. It looks like we're in deep night. On the, on the bed, there's um, carved a relief of a, it looks like someone attacking somebody else with a sword. And so it seems like they are caught up in uh, a reverie. I guess that's maybe implying something nice, but it's more of like a, an obsession or a disturbance about something that has happened or might happen in the future. Okay, I read that card really differently because I see cards, uh, swords as decontextualized intelligence, right? So to me, this is a person who's realizing the truth, the very tough, and sad truth in the middle of the night. So they've woken up and they've come into a state of understanding or intelligence about the reality that they haven't faced before. Mm, I love this so much because it really does speak to your work a lot, especially in the book Conflict is Not Abuse, which is really so much about being willing to see truths that we're not. And I think the nine of swords, though, is it's not about a willingness because I think a middle of the night revelation is your unconscious is breaking through. But you're seeing it as looking backwards and I'm seeing it as a forward moving. I, I see it. I think it depends on which cards appear around it. Um, but I see it as something that is not happening then. In other words, that the person is is not in immediate danger, right? They're in their bed. It's cozy in their bed. They've got this like flower quilt there. But something is haunting them. Something uh, that either hasn't happened yet or has happened in the past but isn't actually there now is it feels very present for them and that it's creating a state of anxiety but I mean I also relate to the nines as the review of a, of a cycle where loose ends are being tied up and where we're reconsidering things that mm-hmm. have been have happened you know because they're coming at the end of the cycle of 1 to 10 and then you begin the new cycle with the 10 or the 10 kind of is an end and a new beginning as well i also think of that that card uh the painting by goya the sleep of reason produces monsters when i think of this card well yeah i guess there is something in what you're saying that does resonate with the idea of revelation negative revelation what about this card I mean, there's no figures in this card. The three of the three of swords. That's heartbreak. Yeah. Well, so that's something. So this is something that I wanted to bring up later, but um, maybe we could dive into it a little bit now, which is this idea that oftentimes people, like I've even done this myself, think about um, heartbreaks that they've had, and they think about the person who broke their heart, and they think that person was doing something very wrong to me. Right. And that's why I'm so angry. But in your book, you do speak to this idea that just because someone hurt you doesn't necessarily mean that they were abusive to you. 
No, I think what I say is that just because you authentically feel pain doesn't mean that someone else, that this particular person has caused that pain. Because we have histories of experience that are often unresolved. And so something that happens in the present can open up that history of pain. But doesn't mean that the person who opened it up is actually the cause. Right. That there, that just because pain exists and we're feeling it doesn't mean that the person who we're interacting with right now is the cause of that pain. Right. And yet they do have something to do with it, right? Well, you know, when you when you puncture someone's facade, you puncture their heart. So do you see that as what's going on with this card, the Three of Swords, like when it comes it up? It could be. It depends. I mean, it could, there's a heartbreak of like that, that, that somebody doesn't take you, your humanity as real. And someone doesn't see you as real and they treat you in a way that's not that's unnecessarily cruel. Right. That's one heartbreak. But another heartbreak is that a person with no bad intention or bad action reveals inadvertently that's something that you, a facade that you had about yourself is actually not so. And that's very painful and people feel shame. You know, in my book, I show these two studies that were done 16 years apart about the difference between shame and guilt. And that when people have conflicts that, that um, express guilt, they're much more likely to want to heal the relationship and have some kind of you know, new life. But when they feel shame, they want to destroy the other person. Voila. And that is history-based, mm-hmm. right? Because if it's hysterical, it's historical. I'm sure you've heard that yeah. expression before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My therapist talks about that, that like when people feel guilty, that it's, um, that it compels them to try and repair a situation. But often exactly. when we feel shame, it's so excruciating that people will do anything not to feel that way and will then maybe engage in all sorts of essentially like violent behaviors whether or not they're well, they want to destroy the person that they're they're associating that feeling with even though maybe that person is actually helping them get to a truer place of self yeah, but th- you know that makes me think about the nine of swords then, because if mm-hmm. that person is feeling shame, which we could easily imagine that they are, right? If they're sitting up with their in the middle of the night with their face in their hands, and then what follows this is, you know, total annihilation in the ten of swords. But that's not what I'm seeing. I mean, that's I understand that's what you're reading, but I'm reading realization. Like, oh, my God, he's not who he said he is. I feel like maybe I just need to dive in and dig in a little bit more around this idea of revelation because it's so interesting. And I haven't I haven't really thought of the suit of swords in that way before. Like, so when you see the ace of swords, for instance, mm-hmm. what comes up for you around that card? Because aces are the full power of the the decontextualized element. Yes. They're like the full power of the suit. They're like the essential Mm -hmm. oil of the suit. And they're speaking to the unadulterated version of whatever the suit is. So I see it as intelligence. So um, what, what I'm imagining the Ace of Swords is that 
It's the person who gets most of their power from intelligence, and so they become disembodied. And so you're seeing the swords as like intellect, disembodied intellect. Okay, what about this one? I'm going to bring a lot of these up later too. But this okay, is, this, is, this the, is a great one. The Eight of Swords. Okay, that's when a person thinks everything is fine, but actually they are completely imprisoned by others, by something exterior. So in this card, just for the for the readers who are listening out there, we have a woman who is bound. She's in this kind of swampy landscape. She's blindfolded and bound, and she's surrounded by eight swords that have been put in the the ground around her, almost like she's imprisoned by them. And then in the background, you see a castle off in the distance. So, but she's smiling. I see her as really feeling very forlorn and abandoned and trapped. And she um, doesn't know that she has the power to free herself. Yeah, so I think, like, let's say she's a woman in her 50s whose adult son has come to live in her house, and he's controlling her space, and he's controlling her money, and he's controlling her relationships, and he's controlling her entire life, but she thinks he's wonderful. Uh, That's what's going on here. So you do talk about that story in your in your book, Conflict is Not Abuse. Can you tell us more about that? Because I love to associate stories with cards, because I think it makes it easier to read them. You know, I don't know how you feel about Andrea Dworkin, but Andrea Dworkin used to tell the story of this woman who's trapped under a rock and that there's three different reactions. One is she does everything she can to get the rock off of her. She pushes and scrapes and her fingers are bleeding and she's trying to be free. The second one says, I love my rock. And the third one says, what rock? <laughs> and so you're thinking that this, the Eight of Swords, is the what, what rock version? Right. That she's trapped, but she doesn't realize how trapped she is. It's women who don't see their situation. It's like women who vote for Trump. Right. Like and, well, for me, I see that she she can free herself and she can liberate herself. Her, her feet aren't bound. She could easily just go up to any one of those swords and just cut her way free. I also see it as kind of this baby elephant syndrome you know that story about the baby elephant who gets tied to a post and he pulls and pulls and pulls and he can't get away because he's got he's tied by a rope to this post and then as he grows up he learns to stop pulling because he knows he's already pulled and he couldn't get away and so then when he becomes a large grown-up elephant that could easily pull away from the post. He doesn't, he no longer believes that he can do it and he doesn't even try to do it anymore. So I often think about this card as rooted in um, trauma and that like that we might have trauma in our history, which I think is certainly implied by the suit of swords that we then, mm-hmm. um, that then, bl- that then blinds us to the power that we have in our, in our current circumstances. And so in order to, free ourselves, we have to become aware of of the circumstances that brought us there in the first place. Well, in order to free ourselves, we need the nine of swords experience. That awakening. Where you wake up in the middle of the night and you realize what the reality is. Oh, no, my son is a fucking parasite. Right. Or whatever. The other thing in this card is water. So water is feelings and emotional life. And all she has to do is like move her foot a half inch and she will get to her feelings. But right now she's she's not there. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. Okay, so I'm really interested to hear about 
your point of view on this card, the Seven of Swords, because oh, yeah. I always feel like this is a super tricky one. This is about stealing from institutions. So we see a person in this card carrying these swords. He's got five swords in his hands, two swords beside him, and there's some tents around him, and uh, it looks like he's absconding or running off with these swords. And he's smiling. He is definitely smiling. So, you know, in the worlds that I've been in and the lives that I've lived, right, which is like a lot of sort of underground people and weird artisty type people and lesbian people and all this stuff, there's a lot of hustlers. Like I've dealt with a lot, a lot of hustlers and they just know how to get the free thing and they know how to ace the system and they know how to work the thing. And sometimes when they don't need to do that anymore, they still do it. And so that, that's, that's what this card is about. People who steal from institutions and get away with stuff and they're just the individual and the thing that they take, the institution doesn't really need. And that's how they run their lives and they feel really good about it. But it has some drawbacks. What are the drawbacks? Well, one of the things is the more that this person, the more swords that this person accumulates, the less they're going to be able to run. That there's a burden. Right. You know, so actually when you're doing it, when you no longer need to, that's when you're headed for trouble. So it needs to be that you authentically need to do that. Mm. But sometimes you need to be part of institutions also. Yeah, I mean, I have never thought about that card in that way, but I do definitely think about this card as being like, there's something that you want that you feel like you can only get through something that's going to cause you pain. So like you feel like the only way you can get this thing that you want is if you go the you know, pay the iron price, as they say in Game of Thrones, right? Like you you steal it or you you hurt someone else to get it or you, you get hurt yourself in the process of getting it. But I also think that there's another way of looking at this card, which is that I imagine that there's a battle that's going to happen the next day, right? Dawn comes and the battle happens on the battlefield. And there's these two warring or opposing forces that are coming together. And this guy is coming in to his enemy's camp in the in you know the early morning before anybody's risen and he's stealing the weapons so that means that he's able to circumvent a greater catastrophe or a greater violence by engaging in essentially uh, alternative ways of resolving conflict than through direct confrontation. Sometimes that could be the case. But you also have to know how to do it the other way also. Which is through direct conflict with other people or through direct engagement. Or being part of the structure as well, being part of the apparatus. Like being outside the apparatus, it's very good to know how to be there. But you don't want to not have the choice where you always have to be there. Exactly. So what about this one? I'm so intrigued. This is the two of swords. You see a woman sitting on a stone bench and she's got two swords in her hands. And behind her is uh, a waxing moon and a, and a seascape with some islands. And she too is blindfolded. So how, how do you interpret this? So to me in the Turo, water is emotional life. Mm-hmm. So she has turned her back on her emotional life. And okay. she's the person who's imprisoning herself. Mm. in this situation. And so what do you feel like the wisdom of the tarot is offering as a way out of this? That you're, that the person who drew the card is unaware of the ways that they are keeping themselves from facing deeper feeling. 
Mm. Okay, so what about this one? The Six of Swords, where we oh, see yeah. a woman and child in a little boat and they're being pushed across a lake or another body of water, which, as you were saying, body of water represents emotions, her emotional life. I love the, the idea of the, the, the phrase emotional life when we see water uh, in the cards. And they're being pushed across this lake by a boatman, uh, looks like some kind of a ferryman. And then there are the swords that are appearing in the boat. Yeah, so to me, this is like you're going to have to just put your feelings aside for a short period of time and focus on your intelligence to solve this problem until it's over, and then you can get back to being emotional. Okay, so I think we've covered all of them except um, the Four of Swords. Oh, yeah, that's delay. So the Four of Swords, there's a knight on a sarcophagus, and it's in, it looks like a cathedral, and there's three swords on the wall suspended behind him, and there's one sword on his on his coffin. And there is a stained glass window appearing in the background. And yeah, the, for me, I see this as putting down our weapons. The, the, a knight, the function of a knight is to engage in battle or to take action, but here he is in a place of worship is in a sacred place. And this is a, a period of restoration and a time when we should lay down our weapons and, um, and reclaim our energy, reclaim our connection to, I would call it spirit. Well, yeah. And I agree with you. Um, you know, in my book, I do this thing where I compare all these systems that look like they have nothing in common like mindfulness, psychoanalysis, pop psychology, and Al-Anon. Those are the four systems. And what I found when I looked at them is that they all had two things that they recommended in common. One was delay. You know, so if someone's mad and you're reading an email and you think it says something, instead of just like saying, fuck you, send, you call them up and say, hey, what is this about? Um, and the other is the positive group the group that encourages you to negotiate and be self-critical instead of just shun. And so delay is a really important part of progress. So that's how I see the four of swords. Yeah, like taking that time before you send that email or before you react. Mm -hmm. I really do want to spend some time with your book, but um, but before we do, let's talk about this final card, the Ten of Swords. In this card, we see a man laying on the ground with ten swords all up and down his spine. In the background are the mountains, and there's a, a dark sky above him with a kind of yellow, uh, either is a sunrise or a sunset that seems to be happening here. So what what's your take on this card when it comes up in a reading? It's Total and unexpected betrayal. You thought you were in a community or a family or some kind of group. Maybe you had a conflict with somebody and suddenly you're just dead. They've all united in destroying you. I mean, I, mean, I have to say, honestly, that card comes up very rarely in certain positions. But, you know, I would say that, let's say it came up as, you know, final outcome. I would say the path that you are on now in relationship to your question, there's a lot of things that you don't understand about the relationships of the other parties involved to each other. This is a group of people. Right. Just look at how many swords there are. Right. So you're seeing it as like a whole group of people has stabbed this guy 
in the back. And they bonded with each other over this. And so what would you recommend to your querent if this card appeared? Well, I would say, I would say, you know, it may be that you are overestimating the individuality of the people that you're interacting with. That they're acting as a group and that the querent is thinking that they have individual relationships with these people. Right, because 10 on 1 is not fair. Certainly is not fair. So there is definitely an injustice implied in this card. Yeah, but we also don't know what this person did. No, we don't. But we, but we we could also argue that no matter what they did, they don't deserve to be stepped in the back like this. Well, that's this question about, and this gets into the book, maybe this is a good segue, but what is the role of punishment? Yes, that's a fantastic segue. So here we are at part two, where we discuss Sarah Shulman's book, Conflict is Not Abuse. And I just wanted to give you a heads up that this section does cover sensitive topics like sexual assault, racism, this the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And some of what we talk about is incredibly nuanced and really requires a willingness to tolerate ambiguity and complexity and uncertainty. So since these are hot button issues and it's a sensitive time out there for folks, I just wanted to give you a heads up about that just in case tarot talk is really all you're down for today. I also want to say that overall, though, Sarah's book is about how conflict can easily escalate into abuse, but it doesn't have to. And she doesn't want it to. She's arguing for greater complexity in the way that we look at what conflict and abuse really are so that we can create a more just and peaceful world. However, In this conversation, we do talk about ideas like victimhood, for instance, which, like I said, can really be triggering for some people. But listen, Donald Trump sees himself as a victim. White supremacists often see themselves as victims. Police who kill people of color speak as if they were terrified victims a lot of the time. So while the idea of victimhood might be difficult to approach, It's a conversation worth having because if we don't, the situation that we have now will continue. But where it gets most challenging, I think, for our audience is where we discuss how ideas about victimhood and the overstatement of harm occur not just in white supremacist communities or out of the mouth of Donald Trump, but but that same habit of thought and mind can also appear in queer communities or traumatized communities, for instance. So I'm going to let that part of the conversation speak for itself, but I just wanted to extend an invitation to you to tune in for this part of the show with a willingness to engage in complexities rather than totalities, meaning that we're just going to say, oh, because she says this, then she means all of that. We're going to just take it on a case-by-case basis here. At least that's what we're going to try and do. So, okay. I can't wait to hear what you think. Here we go. So your book is called Conflict is Not Abuse. Could you 
help us understand the difference between conflict and abuse. And why did you feel like it was important to write this book? So conflict is power struggle. It's when both parties have some ability to transform the situation. It may not be an equal ability, but on some level, they're both participating. And abuse is when is power over. It's when no matter what you do or did, you could not have any impact on what is happening to you. So, you know, when I, when I wrote the book, which was in 2014, that summer there were three events that brought up this question. So one was um, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, and that was, you know, this period of looking at white policemen killing black men and how the policemen saw the men as inherently threatening even though they were not doing anything and killed them. So that was abuse, but the policemen were describing themselves as being endangered. And this is something like we've seen with Trump constantly, although the book was written before Trump was elected, where he's always saying, it's a witch hunt, it's so terrible, he's the victim, da 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 And then I was looking at that, also that summer was the Israeli bombardment of Gaza, which 2,000 civilians were killed. And you're like, here's this huge military state that is the perpetrator. And yet they're constantly describing themselves as the victim. And then also that summer, um, a football player named Ray Rice was videotaped punching his wife and knocking her unconscious in an elevator. And you're like, yes, the person who's beating up their partner believes that on some level they are being harmed and right. that this is their appropriate response. That they're fighting back because they're so attacked. And, right. And so it sounds like you felt like there was something very important about addressing this idea that happens in our within our culture where people who are in fact the ones who hold the power and in fact are being abusive see themselves as victims of the of the people who they are abusing. Right, and, then, and that it exists on these three levels, on the most intimate level of personal relationships, on the level between the state, the police, and civilians, and on this geopolitical global level between peoples. But then as I started to really investigate this and lay it out, I had this revelation that it's not just dominant cultural people who do this. It's also traumatized people who do this. And what I realized was that a person who's raised to be dominant culture, they see other people questioning them as abuse because they've been raised to understand themselves as someone who should never have to be questioned because being questioned is, makes you uncomfortable and they should never be uncomfortable. So if someone is making them uncomfortable, that person is terrible and they should be destroyed. But sometimes when we're traumatized, it's so hard to just keep it together that when someone else is asking you to question your own behavior, even legitimately, it feels like an impossible task and you feel like you're going to fall apart. And so that other person's very appropriate question becomes like a weapon of abuse against you and you can't take it. So you see both kinds of people, supremacists and traumatized, wanting to destroy others for having a different point of view because it's so threatening 
It sounds like in both instances, it comes back to this idea of one's sense of self and that for the bully or the supremacist, they cannot have their self be questioned because they they come from a position of entitlement. Like, I am entitled to never question who I am. The whole society is organized around me, and I have the right to always be comfortable. Right. And then you're saying that there's the traumatized person who, because they have been abused or traumatized in the past, has such a fragile and vulnerable sense of self and is so barely kind of hanging on to what that identity is or who they are, that if it's questioned in any way, that it feels like violence because it, right. it feels like they could fall apart. In fact, it's threatening their, their being because their, their sense of self or their beinghood is, is so fragile that even a small wind could could harm. That's right. Now, the innovation that I'm proposing is in the past, when a person is overstating harm from a place of trauma, we say, no, that's ridiculous. You don't count. But isn't there a way that we can hear the person's pain and support them and help them without having to hurt somebody else, without having to shun somebody else as the where that punishment is positioned as the thing that will help them? Well, one of the things that you talk about in the book that I think is very interesting is this idea that we only give compassion to victims. And so right. if we want compassion, if we want someone to understand us, if we want our point of view to be heard, then we have to be a victim because right. otherwise no one will listen. That's right. If, they, if people found out that we participated in the conflict, then we are definitively not worthy of compassion because we were participating. And so it sounds like what you're saying is that's not true. Right. That's exactly the problem, that you have to be eligible for compassion. And the way that you're eligible is by being a pure victim that almost very few people are. Right. I think I remember you talking about in the book about like Law and Order SVU. Mm -hmm. Right. So in Law and Order SVU, our listeners might remember, this is like the special victims unit that is like um, a rape unit, essentially. And in the show, we have the victim has to be virtuous, right? They, they have to not have had drinks and they have to have not worn a sexy outfit and they have to have um, really made it clear that they just wanted to be friends. Um, and there's no room for the victim to maybe have had a lot of drinks, been wearing a sexy outfit, wanted to have sex with the person, invited them home to their house and then changed their mind at the last minute or even while they were having sex. They can't do that because if they did that, then they're not worthy of compassion if they were raped. And then the the vic the the oppressor or the rapist has to be completely bad on all levels, like irredeemably bad on in every way. And they there's no room for them to be anything else but somebody who hides in the bushes um, and decides that they want to attack people. Like a friend of mine uh, did a, jo a job for Columbia University looking at all of the cases of um, sexual assault that were reported between students. And what she found was that, yes, there's a small group of people who are actually predators, who actually enjoy destroying somebody else's will. 
But for a lot of people, when they come to college, they don't know anything about sex. They don't understand how you get from one place to another. They have images from television. It's very gray zone. And so they think that there's messages going on that aren't going on and that it was really like a confusion gray area. So the question is, if, if there's a person A and a person B, and over here they have the same unfortunate sexual experience, and this person, person A, is traumatized for the rest of their life from that experience, and person B is like, oh, well, but they had the exact same experience. The difference is not in the experience itself. It's not the experience in those 40 minutes or whatever that hold the value. It's the who the person was before. It's their whole history. It's their whole sense of self. It's how they're situated socially. There's so many elements. So that when you're looking at it to try to decide how to deal with it, it has to be dealt with on a very specific individual basis each time. If you have an across the board standard, it's just so inappropriate. Because for, for different people, it has different. So if somebody's history makes them hysterical and feel damaged forever, they need support and acknowledgement. But if somebody else is like, oh, well, that was nothing, then they don't need it. But it doesn't mean that the, the two parties who are the, quote, perpetrators should be treated equally. Because who are they and what's their backgrounds? So if you're Jeffrey Epstein and you kiss some some 14-year-old girl or you're a 15-year-old boy who's never kissed anyone and you kiss a 14-year-old girl, you're doing the same action, but your histories are completely different. And so it has different meaning. And same for that girl. So the, for the girl, it has a different meaning if she is kissed by a 15-year-old or if she's kissed by Jeffrey Epstein. It may not have a different meaning. It may have the same meaning for her. It depends on what her who she is. So these things are very, very individual. And so like the kind of rules that people are talking about now, like um, what constitutes consent or you can't have sex with someone if they're drunk. I mean, a friend of mine, Olivia Lang, I don't know if you know her, but she's a British writer. She said, if you can't have sex with someone when you're drunk, that's the end of anyone in England ever having sex. And I would you know, agree because, with that, having lived in England. Because <laughs> <laughs> people do, I mean, it gets into a whole other category, but Sometimes people do drugs and get drunk because they want to have sex that they can't let themselves have if they don't do those things. So it's very complex, right? So these kind of across-the-board rules that we have, they're not appropriate for every individual. But so I'm imagining that some people might be thinking, then are you saying that someone who, let's say, was assaulted by someone while they were drunk um, that that it's all about contingencies. And um, I guess I, what I'm wondering is it seems like that people could could feel quite vulnerable listening to this. Well, like you use the word assaulted, right? I, I didn't use that word. Right. Someone who's assaulted while they're drunk, that's wrong. Right. No one should be assaulted while they're drunk. But somebody who gets drunk because they need giving themselves permission to have sex and then in retrospect, that was not the best decision that they made and how it impacts them, how it makes them feel about themselves and how they respond to the future. All of that is very individual. 
So it sounds like what you're advocating for is an ability to tolerate complexity and ambiguity. But also to, to listen to people describe their experience. Like to, to look at things in individuated ways and ask somebody, why do you think this happened? Why do you, how are you feeling? Ask the person who's the perpetrator, the quote perpetrator. Why, why do you think you're being called a perpetrator? Well, this gets to, I think a, a story would be good to illustrate this. And in the book, you talk about um, a situation where a student um, was writing things about you online, which made you uncomfortable. And the faculty that you told about this said that he was He's a stalking you. Yeah. So could you tell that story? Because I think it really gets it some of the things that you're... I had a graduate student who was from a very highly oppressed community and got over-involved with me on some level. And this was in the very early days of the internet. And he had a blog about how he wanted to fuck me and he was in love with me and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't even know what a blog was. Okay, so it was very early. And when I discovered this, or actually somebody said to me, have you seen this blog about you? And I said, what's a blog? I told my colleagues and they were like, he's stalking you. You should go to the administration. Now, if I had done that, in other words, if I had agreed with them that I was a victim and I was being victimized and that I was in danger and therefore I should go to the authorities, they would have all embraced me and treated me like the victim and been nice to me. And I would have destroyed this guy's career. You you talk in the book about about the seduction, about how there's a seduction. Like you you would have been treated so much like, oh, this horrible thing has happened to you and we want to protect right. you. But that there wasn't, that nobody was like, why don't you talk to this kid and see what's going on for that? Well, that was the thing that disturbed me. Because nobody said to me, have you asked him why he did this or what he thinks is going on? And this is so crucial. Like we are constantly being asked to hurt other people all the time. People are saying, why did you invite her? Why are you working with him? You shouldn't be friends with them. Da, 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 da. Constantly. My policy is that if somebody says that to me, I call the person who they're saying I should have nothing to do with and ask them, why do you think this is happening? So I asked him. First of all, I told him that I couldn't continue to be his advisor, that I was transferring him to somebody else. I told him. I didn't send him a letter. But I said that I was willing to talk to him about it as much as he needed to talk until we could work it out. So I didn't do this thing like, you have 60 seconds and I'm never going to talk to you again, which people do all the time. So stupid. So, you know, if he called me, I called him back and we talked about three times over a period of time, and he transferred to somebody else, and it was fine. And what, he, what I learned was two things. He had never had an authority figure who had supported him before, so he had become over-involved. And I also learned that his generation wrote their feelings online, which was something that I wasn't used to yet, because I'm from a pre-internet generation. It all turned out to be fine. So you found out that this student like basically was so enamored of you because he felt like you had seen him when nobody else, no other authority figure or adult had really seen him before. And so then he misguidedly started 
you know, saying all these things about you online that ultimately made you feel uncomfortable, but that had you gone to the administration and said, I'm being stalked, that that student would have been kicked out of school and then, or something or something stigmatized, stigmatized yeah. and that it could have like ruined his entire career. Right. And also that what writing this blog was culturally appropriate to his generation. So but this is information that I never would have had ever if I hadn't asked him. So if I just relied on my ability to imagine his motive, I never would have gotten at the essential information. But I guess something key here also is that you were in a position of power and authority with the students. So there so you did have access to quote unquote, the authorities. Um, So because I could imagine someone out there listening to this and being like, so I should go ask my stalker like why they're doing it. And put myself that's not what I'm saying. That's what I don't think that you're saying that. But I just want to clarify that for for listeners, because as you said, and as you say so many times in your book, often if we have experienced a violation, historically, that hearing about a similar violation or even the potential of such a violation can stir up so much within us that we stop hearing the nuances of what people are saying and instead just jump to the conclusion of saying, oh, so there, she asked someone who potentially was stalking her why they did it. Therefore, she is saying we should always ask our stalkers why they're doing it and put ourselves in a position of harm, which is not true and is not what you're saying. No, I mean, a friend of mine, Will Burton, says that people who understand that there is an unconscious, unconscious, really like my book, and people who don't believe in the unconscious really hate it. So people who don't believe that there's parts of their own motives and um, and um, objectives that they may not be fully in touch with, absolutely hate this book. Like, it's really, if you look at Goodreads for this book, it's like five stars, one star, five stars, one star. You know, it, um, and I read, I finally read a review that I really liked where this, this person said, you know, at the beginning of the book, Shulman says, this is not about being right. I'm not saying that all these ideas are right. I'm just saying, like, let's have a conversation about them. If you read the book that way, then you'll get something out of it, even if you disagree with it. So you're saying, in a sense, that conflict, not abuse, but conflict Mm -hmm. is an invitation to dialogue where we could know more than we had before. And we don't have to punish because we're feeling uncomfortable. We don't have to punish because we feel that our um, we feel threatened somehow by dissenting opinion. That's right. So if you read something like like sometimes people will like take this 360 page book and they'll underline one sentence and then they'll take a picture of it and put it on Twitter and say, see, this is an abuse manifesto. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But it's like, no, it's a 360 page cumulative argument that starts with the intimate and ends with Israel, Palestine. And it shows how refusing to be self-critical and relying on your group to keep you from being self-critical is the structure that produces global political oppression, that it's very similar dynamics of false loyalty. 
But they come across an idea somewhere, maybe usually in the first few pages, that makes them feel uncomfortable for whatever reason. And then they hate the whole thing or they don't read it. Right. So it's been a fascinating experience because there's on Twitter, every once in a while, there's someone who's like, Shulman is a known abuser. And then somebody will say, what's your evidence for that? And they'll say, it's well known. You know, there's no one out there in the world saying that I've abused them like that, that there's no voice saying that, but it's, it has, you know, it becomes that it has to be because if you're reading it and it makes you uncomfortable and if being uncomfortable equals abuse, then the book is abusive. Right. And so you're saying being uncomfortable does not equal abuse. Being uncomfortable is necessary. It's a positive, necessary dynamic because it means that people from places of difference are coexisting with some kind of equality. Discomfort is something that is positive and that we should have within communities in order for us to work work it out and understand one another. Yes, that's right. It coexists. Well, so I wanted to discuss some of the ways you talk about normative conflict. So normative conflict is like, we get in conflict. We get in conflict in our families. We get in conflict in our friend groups. We get in conflict politically. We get in conflict in um, academia. We get in conflict at work. That's normative conflict where pe- where two people or groups of people see things differently. So some of the ways that conflict can go wrong is escalation. Can we talk about that for a sec? Sure. So you say Escalation is a kind of smokescreen to cover up the agent's own influence on events, their own contributions to the conflict. Mm-hmm. So why do people want to cover up the ways in which they participate in a conflict? So they can be eligible for compassion. Because if they don't, then they believe that no one will, will listen to them, no one will be compassionate right. towards them. Which is often true. Right. So they so they have kind of so they they intuit that mm-hmm. if if they say that, you know, maybe they messed up or the other person just sees it differently, then they're not going to have anybody listen to them. That's their feeling. Right. And it's often true. Mm-hmm. So and then you say that they use accusation to create an artificial furor to override or distract from their own responsibilities. So people right. will accuse others so that nobody looks at what they themselves have done. Right, because anybody can accuse anybody of anything. The fact that someone is accused doesn't mean anything. All it means is that they were accused. And you're saying, why don't we ask? Right, because you have huge communities of pathologized peoples who have been blamed for everything when actually they are the ones who are endangered. I mean, I talk a lot about people with AIDS in this book. You know, people with AIDS are vulnerable. Um, They are endangered, and yet they get positioned as dangerous. And, you know, this has been true. This this paradigm shift has been true for all kinds of people who don't have power, social power. Okay, so there's the escalation, and then there's also the overstatement of harm. So I've, I've seen this happen before where people feel like they won't get listened to unless they make the harm out to be something truly, truly egregious. So maybe they are feeling right. truly hurt and, and they deserve to be supported and heard. But maybe the thing that they're hurt by isn't 
abuse, as you said, but it, but they were truly hurt by it. But people feel like unless they say something really, really bad happened to them that they don't get listened to. That's right. And then the, the last two things that I wanted to discuss in this part were about shunning and exclusion and the state. So, so then what happens when conflict gets escalated? One party is, is blaming or, or escalating or saying that something is more abusive than it is. Then shunning and exclusion starts happening because right. then we bring the community in. This is where the two, like, or the family or whatever, or the state yeah. or whoever. Mm-hmm. That so that once conflict gets sort of blown into this next realm, which is being called abuse when it isn't, because we're we're not talking about abuse, right? That we're talking about conflict that's being called abuse. Then shunning and exclusion starts happening. Right. And, and, you know, calling the police and trying to get somebody arrested is the ultimate, right? So, for example, I, I show, I give information in my book about um, a gay, National Gay Anti-Violence Hotline showed that in same-sex relationships, when the police were called, the person who they arrest is the butch, the one who's an immigrant, the person of color, or the one who's not a mother, that's who they arrest, regardless of what's actually happening, because they can't differentiate. So they just go with prejudices, you know. So the state is like an arm of the sort of biases of our culture. And that regardless of what's happening within a situation, the state has these preconceived ideas of, of innocence and guilt. That's right. That's and that right. it just goes with whatever those preconceptions are. And that that is also possible within communities, even progressive queer communities, for instance. Right. I mean, there's so many cases of like the guys having a breakdown and then the father doesn't know what to do. He calls the police and the police come and they kill the son. We see this all the time. The police in the United States do not know how to solve problems. Uh, As a profession, police officer has the highest rate of domestic violence of any profession in the United States. The police are the last people you should call if you're having a problem. So because they escalate. Right. So in a way, like the police are almost like, um, I'm seeing this kind of like the, the, an example or kind of a, a stand in a symbol of, our collective inability to look at our own motivations. Could be. That's a good way of putting it. The like, or the state's inability to look at its true motivations. Because the police, in theory, are supposed to be the protectors and the servers and the ones who are, you know, administering justice to a certain degree or preventing Right, but harm. that's never been true. But that's not true. It's never been true. And all the apparatus that we've developed to try to protect battered women or things like that, the state manipulates those things. So like, for example, I quote this amazing social worker, Catherine Hodes, who shows that actually perpetrators are the first people now to send lawyer letters, to get restraining orders. You know, the perpetrator is the person who's bringing in the state. And the state comes in, they don't know what happened. Because these types of things that were originally protective are now part of the whole control mechanism. So it gets all very, very murky in there. 
Yeah. So somebody could say, well, I got a restraining order on him. Well, you know, that, what, that, what does that actually mean? It's very easy to get a restraining order. I give the example in the book of two gay men who both got restraining orders on each other. Well, what does that mean? It means you agree not to talk to each other. It has no meaning. Right. So you're saying that we, unless we really get a clear picture and work to try and understand the truth of what actually happened, which is going to be different in every circumstance. That's right. Then we don't know that it wasn't the aggressor who got the restraining order. Yeah. I mean, you know, domestic violence is primarily men against women. And we know that. And there's hundreds of thousands of arrests in New York City of true domestic violence every year. But there's a rhetoric that has emerged inside these um, subcultures, which is really class-based, that is highly, highly escalated, where it's not, I mean, yes, of course, there are cases, subcultural cases of where there's a man who's violent against a woman and she doesn't know how to get out of it. Of course, that's true. But people use these words like assault, um, aggress, abuser, and all this stuff when that's not what's happening. And they use violent as a metaphor instead of as something actual, which it is in real people's lives. So every time you overstate harm, you're making it harder for people who actually are abused to get the services that they need or to get the responses that they need. So, yeah, it's a lot of this stuff is really so these kind of people who came from former middle class backgrounds or who uh, are passing for middle class and have created this kind of subculture of alternative values, but yet there's this very big sense of entitlement. These are places where a lot of this escalatory language is used constantly. And and that often it can be, even though it seems like it's being used to protect the vulnerable, in fact, when we see it most typically used in our culture at large, it's to, is to harm the most vulnerable. Right. Well, so how can the community help us solve our conflicts? Because it seems like that's a big point of your book. I think that, first of all, if two people have trouble talking to each other and they need a little break for a few weeks or something, that's totally reasonable. But at some point, you really just need to ask other people to help you. You know, the role of friends and community is to encourage people to negotiate whenever possible. And you make the distinction in the book that that often what happens, though, in communities is that if you say to someone like, oh, you know, my girlfriend uh, and I are breaking up and, you know, I hate her and she's so mean and she did all these horrible things that often the community then says, yeah, fuck her. She's horrible. Like, you should, like, never talk to her again. Like, she's abusing you. And maybe she is or maybe she's not but let's say she's not abusing you but you feel really angry in her and your and then your community says yeah she's horrible she's evil that's right and then they shun her for the next 20 years and nobody remembers why or anything like that and it's you know it's ridiculous but so what you're saying is that the, those communities that that is a bad behavior on behalf of the community and that in fact the community should be there to help you get clear and to help, in fact, um, resolve the conflict rather than escalating the conflict. And the right, only way- a true friend helps you be self-critical. A true friend is a person to whom you can say, you know, I escalated that conflict. And they can say, thank you for telling me the truth. 
and put their arms around you and hug you and tell, tell you that they love you. Instead of when you say, you know, I escalated the conflict and they say, well, then you're terrible and we're not going to have anything to do with you. Right. So, so you're saying that even if the person did participate in escalating the conflict, they still deserve love and care and that it's understandable that people just get into conflicts. They have tendencies to escalate. They do all of this stuff. And, and that as long as we, we show up as a community by caring for and understanding rather than also jumping on and escalating that in fact, because everybody needs care. I mean, Everybody needs health care. Everybody needs a home. Everybody needs access to education. Everybody needs community. Everybody needs society. And, you know, these kind of supremacy ideologies where people get accused of being human or having contradictions and then they're shunned for the rest of their lives is absurd. I do see that this idea of the community bringing clarity and the community having an allegiance to fairness and equality is related to the idea of swords, which is, you know, often the, the figure of justice is holding a sword. And this idea of, um, you know, I think of the queen of swords, for instance, as, as someone who brings clarity to whatever conversation she comes to when she's in her most exalted form. Like if, if there is an escalated conflict, she can come in. And she can be like, whoa, 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 guys, let's hear what's going on from both people's perspectives. Let's let's see if we can find a way to work through this. And so I I, I feel like basically what I'm getting from all of this, at least from my own interpretation of the swords, is that um, the suit of swords is guiding us to not avoid feeling uncomfortable. I guess that's well, good. And who is the queen of who goes to the queen of swords when she does something wrong? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the answer. So, so if the Queen of Swords does something wrong, then she needs to have maybe maybe the Queen of Cups can come in and like be there for her, listen to her, and say, you know, it's okay if you did something wrong. We still love you, but in this yeah. case, you were wrong. <laughs> or maybe it's Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. Um, maybe we maybe we should end there. Yeah, I'm gonna say that. So um, okay, so we'll end with the Wheel of Fortune. And thank you so much, Sarah, for this very interesting conversation. I feel like it's really provided me a lot of insight, things to think about moving forward. Um, so where should our listeners find you? I think they'll probably want to rush out and read your book, Conflict is Not Abuse. But is there anything else that you'd like to let them know about? I'm on Facebook and people can follow me. I have a new book coming out in May. It's a history of ACT UP New York. It's 730 pages, 20 years in the making. So that's my next endeavor. Wow, we can't wait for that. Well, thank you so much <laughs> for taking the time. And and yeah, everybody, please do go out and check out her Facebook page. Uh, there's a rigorous conversation going on there at all times. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us, Sarah. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Subscribers to our Weird Circle at the Jupiter level get workshops, community, bonus content, and magical support throughout the year. We really do hope that you join us. In the meantime, if you love our content and want to keep us on the air, please do take a moment to give us five stars or leave us a sweet review on iTunes or share your favorite moments from the podcast on social media. 
truly all of it makes a huge difference to us, you can tag me at Oracle Valet or at Between the Worlds Podcast. Not only does your support help keep us on the air, it helps baby witches who really need this content know how to find their way to us between the worlds. So thank you for being here and thank you for helping other people find their way here as well. This podcast is hosted by Amanda Yates Garcia and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker Ricks. Our icon was created by Maria Minnis, aka Tiny Parsnip, and our graphic design is by Leah Hayes. Thanks for flying with us.